For our scripture text, I'd like to invite you to join me in taking your Bibles and turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 8 through 13. Love never, never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Our brother Greg will bring us this morning's message if we let him go on like this. Yeah, I know. I can't believe you let me back either. So do you remember what we were studying the last time we were together? <laughs> you do not. <laughs> you liar. <laughs> it's only been eight months. Um, I, I wanted to just uh, get started and start with the illustration <clears throat> because uh, I was going to start crying if I don't. But uh, I just want to tell you how wonderful it is to be here. How wonderful it is to see you. Um, and I can't say any more than that. Like I said, uh, uh, <clears throat> the last uh, three weeks or so have been some of the busiest and trying of our lives. So I uh, just want to uh, let you know that Nellie made the trip, but we got in about two o'clock this morning. So uh, she's out. So, uh, and, and I don't know if we'll see her this afternoon. I just hope you understand. <clears throat> um, I was telling Becky earlier, in a lot of ways, this past year has been one of the hardest years of my life, our lives, actually. It's just been so up and down. So there's great, wonderful things, and then these horrible troughs, you know, and everything that, that we went through just before we left, and, and uh, having to leave you, uh, it, all, uh, it all takes its toll over a, a few months. So um, the last three weeks, not any different, but... Uh, uh, it's so wonderful to be here. I mean, I think, of, uh, I think of Esther and Mordecai. For such a time as this, all we have right now is what we have together, you and, you and me and the Lord and, and the Sabbath. And uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. In 1991, <clears throat> uh, and, and this just started yesterday, so bear with me uh, a little bit. We were, the last three weeks, we've been uh, attending meetings and, and, and a discipleship walk down in Fresno. So I think going from the heat to air conditioning and everything uh, finally started this. So I will uh, 
I'll, uh, I'll need some water and, and, and a little prayer that it just holds up is all. So. In 1991, the American Institute of Architects cited Frank Lloyd Wright as the greatest American architect of all time. He designed more than a thousand projects that resulted in 500 completed works. Among them were offices, churches, schools, hotels, museums. You know what's amazing about it? Is that he did it with three shapes. Do anybody know what our three basic geometric shapes are? A triangle, a square, and a circle. To become the greatest living, or the greatest, not he wasn't living at the time, but the greatest American architect, he could do it with three simple shapes. My favorite painter is contemporary Adventist artist Nathan Green. Anybody know of Nathan's work? You'd recognize it immediately if you saw it, wouldn't you, Jim? It's, it's distinct, isn't it? The way he can, he takes Jesus and places him in modern settings, and it just evokes such emotion from him. And he's mastered the art of gicle, which he explained it to me before, but I can't, I can't explain what it is. But it, it has a look when you see it, and it's stunning. And of course, he did it with three basic colors. What are those? Blue, yellow, and green. One of the greatest architects of all time can do it with three basic shapes. And one of the greatest painters I've ever seen can do it with three basic colors. That's it. Every color, every color combination that we see right now comes from these three. Every uh, design that we have of everything here that takes up space, it all comes from three basic shapes. Three shapes, three colors. 1 Corinthians 13 <clears throat> is an interesting chapter. If I were to ask you to go anywhere in the Bible that would define biblical love, you'd have to go to 1 Corinthians 13 because it's the only chapter in all the Bible that defines biblical love. The Gospels, and any time that we talk about Jesus, it describes God's love because Jesus is God's love, walking on two feet. But to have it described for you in a way, a, a, a dictionary definition of biblical love, you have to go to 1 Corinthians 13. And if I were to ask you to just sum it up, what is love? according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is simply without self. Because everything he says, love is what? Love is, it, no, actually he does it, it, it it's, a great, uh, it's, a, it's a great Hebrew way of thinking. He takes a great vast uh, subject like love and instead of trying to tell you what it is, he tells you what it isn't. Right? It isn't... Uh, it's not puffed up. It's, it's not arrogant. It does not take into account a wrong. It's patient. It's kind. And it never what? It never fails. See, Corinth is a special church. It's a very special church. They have been endowed and in, imbued and anointed with great spiritual gifts. 
They're given all the greatest gifts of worship a church can have. They're given prophecy. They're given tongues. They're given preaching. All of it all comes together. Everything's happening in that church on Sabbath morning. The greatest things that the Holy Spirit can give you. But the problem with Corinth is that they're missing one thing, according to Paul. They're missing the greatest gift. He says that that it's great to prophesy. It's great to speak in tongues. It's great to be able to have great discourses and preaching. But in Corinth... They're all doing it together. The prophesiers are saying, no, my, great, my gift is better. It's better to prophesy. Paul said so. And the tongue speakers are saying, no, my, my gift is greater. And they're doing it out of order, and they're jumping on each other. And the preacher's standing up saying, whoa, wait a minute. No, I, I divine the word for you. And they're all doing it together. In other words, they're what? They're selfish. So Paul has to put this ear in the middle of his discourse to the Corinthians and begin with saying, guess what? I wish that you would strive for the greater gift, which is love. And when he gets all the way through that, he says, look, prophesying, tongue speaking, it'll all fail. Because those are, those are stopgap methods for believers on a fallen planet. Eventually, we will no longer need prophecy. Why? Jeremiah tells us. No one will walk up to to you. Jonathan, you can't walk up to me and say, know the Lord. This is what he's like. You know why? Because I will know him too. We won't need a prophet anymore. Languages will all come back. We won't need tongues anymore. We won't need any of these wonderful spiritual gifts. These are all stopgap methods for people on this planet. In the end, he says, when it's all done away with, we'll be left with one thing, love. In a way, he says, now abide these, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Is love. It's very telling, that last verse. You can can preach for, for ages on 1 Corinthians 13. Our last... Our, our, our series, when we went through it just a few months ago, Walt preached all the way through. He took the entire the chapter. He took the whole chapter. He spent three weeks preaching on that. And then he went away and he says, I'm leaving you with the last verse. I said, two Sabbaths on one verse? And the verse is only two lines long. But guess what? I could do it. I think I could do five. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Those are our basic shapes, if you think about it. Those are our basic colors. Whatever tapestry God has in mind when he paints you as a believer or shapes you as a believer in him, he does it with three basic shapes and colors. He does it with faith, he does it with hope, and he does it with love. But the greatest of these, he says, is what? is love. Let me ask you this. Can faith and hope, how many here agree absolutely with the statement that faith and hope are wonderful things? They don't get much more wonderful than faith and hope, do they? Not at all. Don't get much more wonderful than faith and hope. 
But, he says, the greatest of these is love. Can faith and hope be a bad thing without love? You want to prove it? Turn to John chapter 12. Take a look at John chapter 12. And remember that this is here we are. All of us shaped and colored by three things. Faith, hope, and love. John chapter 12 is the transition between Jesus' public ministry and the hour and suffering of his death. Remember, John is like none of the other Gospels. It's not a complete autobiography. John only concerns himself with Jesus' last, uh, almost, actually, you would say the last three years of his life, but really, it, 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 it's, it's like the last six months of his life. It's, 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 most of it is. It's, it's, it's very concise as far as the, 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 the amount of time that John covers. It's very, very short. But in talking about his ministry and, and, and Jesus proving who he is, and then the next section is leading up to the hour of his death. That's why you have all these wonderful, long, lilting prayers from John chapter 12 on, the prayers of John 15 and 16 and 17. In fact, the, the last three or four chapters is all the night or the night before his death. And John writes his gospel, unlike Mark, Matthew, and Luke, he writes his gospel with a couple of emphases. There are two things John wants you to know when you're reading his gospel. Number one, he wants you to know who Jesus was and is. He has no other reason to write this. And number two, he writes it for the second generation. He writes it for those who haven't seen. John has us in mind when he writes the gospel because he knows. He knows that he's the last. He knows he's the very last one. He's the last one left on earth who saw him, talked to him, took part in his miracles and everything else. John is nearly, probably, we would say 110 to 120 years old when he writes it. This is the last book written of the Bible. This is even written after Revelation. And he already hears it. He already hears people saying, well, I heard him. I was there. I heard him. My experience is greater. So he writes his gospel with one thing in mind. He writes it for those who haven't seen. And he actually tells us, he says, it's the only place where you find Jesus telling him, "You, you believe because you saw me, he says, but blessed are those who believe and yet haven't seen. Because when it all comes down to it, everybody who saw him Everybody who was there, they're left with just a handful. He's saying, no, those who saw didn't believe. John reminds us of that. And this is where we're at in John chapter 12. By the time you get to John chapter 12, he's given Israel just a few signs that he really is who he says he is. Just a few, okay? He's turned water into wine at a wedding. He's healed a few people, including a couple of lepers. He's fed 5,000. He's walked on water. He's preached. The healings were interesting. A paralytic, a blind man, a man born blind. But it was real interesting. He chooses his two greatest, so far up to this point, greatest miracles to do on the Sabbath. He heals them on the Sabbath. Which causes some problems with the church. The church isn't very happy with him. And then finally, absolutely, to prove exactly who he is, 
he actually has raised a friend of his from the dead. Somebody who was really dead, documented, death certificate, stinking, decaying, he raises him from the dead. So here we are in John chapter 12. What are you going to do with the Messiah? How are you going to react? Are we a people of great faith, of great hope, and of great love? Because if we're not, what we do with the Messiah may be completely, absolutely opposite of what we're supposed to do with the Messiah. What would you have done? Imagine us, imagine the church being there while he's still walking the earth. Are we a people of great faith, of great hope, and do we have great love? Verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So six days later, he comes tootling back into Bethany. I think it's funny. He raises somebody from the dead and then he just takes off. Heads on over to Jerusalem. Okay. Comes back six days later. He's back in Bethany. Okay. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served him while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Okay, so the two, the two main characters in this drama are at the table. Okay, they're laying there at the table, reclining with each other. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's real interesting, the nard, the pure nard. You get an idea of this is that if you were to buy an ounce of this stuff, from what I understand, you could, you could make about 10-year supply of perfume from it because they mixed it with oil. They took the nard, which it, it was like the, the, the spices and everything in concentrated form. And this stuff, whatever it was, like I said, it's, it's like one in 10,000 parts, and she takes all of it, all of it, and dumps it on Jesus' feet. I, I think they knew she was there. You get some pictures, you get some... Uh, I love the paintings that show, first of all, that they're sitting at a full table, like up here, you know, and that kind of Mary just kind of snuck in and she crawled under the table. You know. Even if that happened, once she opened that thing and dumped the whole thing out, I think, she, I think everybody knew she was there. And if you, you talk about, if you guys got some allergies with perfumes and stuff, like, phew, forget that. <clears throat> the thing was too is that it probably cost her about $10,000 her money which would have been about 10 years of wages she was saving this for something special she dumps it on his feet then she begins to wipe it with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume no kidding John thanks <clears throat> But you've got to imagine, as John writes this nearly 100 years later, I bet he can still smell it, can he? Yeah. He probably tasted it, yeah. He probably tasted it for two weeks. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Sorry, 10 years. I'm an evangelist. You know, evangelistic numbers. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in the bag. Jesus then says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but me, I will not always be with you. I love what Jesus said. What are you saving it for? What are you saving it for? What are you saving your best for? He says, in a little while, I'll be gone. What are you saving it for? The poor you'll always have with you. (laughs) You're going to have plenty of opportunity to help the poor, Judas. What are you saving it for? We know the story, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene, by the way, is not her last name. It's where she's from. Magdala was a little town popped up at the side of Tiberias. Tiberias being the largest Roman garrison in the Galilee. Tiberius is still there. As a matter of fact, Magdala is still there too. But um, I, uh, I grew up uh, on an army base. And from what I understand, my hometown kind of had this reputation uh, a little bit. But usually when a town pops up right beside an army base, it's there for something. It's there to provide soldiers with certain types of entertainment and liquid refreshment. So you get the idea? Sabbath morning, I don't want to, can't, can't go into it too much, okay? You understand though, right? Magdala was her reputation. Magdalene, if you were from Magdala and you were a woman, everybody knew what you did. She wore it around her neck like a scarlet letter. And people always reminded of it. You're Mary, the Magdalene. And once everybody said that, they knew exactly who she was. And what's worse, they knew exactly what she was. Was Mary a great pillar of faith? Did she have great faith and great hope? She was pretty shaky, wasn't she? Just a little shaky. She comes to Jesus, and she has to keep coming back to him, according to John chapter 8, according to Luke chapter 8, how many times? At least seven times. She falls after first coming to Jesus, at least because he said that he had to, uh, he had to uh, cast s- at least seven demons out from her. And the way that it's written, it doesn't sound like he did all seven at one time. Because he said, you know what happens is you cast a demon out, and, and what happens is that they go away, and then when they come back, they find the house all nice and clean. <laughs> so they bring some more to party with. And Mary's faith is a lot like yours and mine, isn't it? Get excited when we first come to Jesus. Get excited when we see the old demons cast out. Then after a couple of weeks, it begins to get a little dry. What happens to us? Begin to fail. Begin to let the Bible study slide. Begin to let our fellowship slide. Stay away from church for a while because I'm not feeling real good. And then, by the way, I feel guilty about not doing that. So then it's even worse. And it's easier to just keep sliding. That was Mary. So I would say Mary is a lot like us. Not too strong a faith. Not too strong a hope. But look at her now. Look at her now. 
She's gone from not believing that Jesus could do anything for her. In fact, when, she, when Jesus shows up at Bethany to heal Lazarus, I want you to notice it's Martha that comes out to see him. Mary stays back in the house. And I, and I, and I recently was studying a, a, a professor that was looking at that, and he's saying, I wonder what happened. I wonder if Mary is in there upset. She's mad. And as a matter of fact, her words to Jesus when she finally sees him are not very kind. If you would have been here, And she doesn't believe that Jesus can do anything now. Why? Because Lazarus is dead. She believes that he he could have healed him if he just would have showed up when he was sick. And by the way, we gave you plenty of notice. It's Martha that says, I believe that whatever you set your mind to, you can do. If you do it, it'll happen. Not Mary. So Mary's gone from not believing in Jesus and all to this. Risking the ultimate of public embarrassment. What if somebody looks at her and realizes who she is? In fact, if it's the same story told in the Gospels of the party, Simon says to himself, look, if if, if he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her be touching him right now. She risked the ultimate embarrassment. What if Jesus calls her out? What if they all find out who she is? And then what does Jesus say about this one act? What does Jesus say about this woman of shaky faith and shaky hope? He says, I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And guess what? We're still talking about it. Aren't we? She's gone from unbelief to this. The thing about her shaky faith and shaky hope, though, is where do you usually find Mary? At the feet of Jesus. She's stuck to his feet, always. In John 8, she's dragged to Jesus, drugged, dragged, dragged. They pulled her along. (laughs) In humiliation and throw her at the feet of Jesus. But when she gets there, what does she find? She finds love, mercy, and release. Go, she says, and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, woman. In the chapter before this, she falls at his feet in grief and unbelief and helplessness because her brother Lazarus is dead, and she can't figure out why Jesus didn't get there. In Luke 10, she sits at his feet in study and contemplation while her sister is really hacked because she's not helping. And in John 19, she will be one of a few women who will be at the foot of the cross while all of his big man, he-man disciples are all scared and running away. In fact, in John chapter 20, you'll then find her at the feet of the resurrected Jesus, clinging to him to try to keep him from going away. Mary, don't cling to me. i got to go to my father. And here in this chapter, she anoints Jesus' feet in a spirit of sacrifice that you and I can't even imagine. A year's wages, blown 
in about five minutes. Not caring who thinks what about me. This I'm going to do. Why? Because I love him. And it's all I got. So note, shaky faith, shaky hope, but she loves him. And it changed her. It changed who she was. It changed how she reacted. It changed the way she saw herself. She was hopeless in sin, had nothing to offer but received the love of Jesus, realizing she needed it herself, and she loved him back, and that's all there is to it. I wish, I wish that I could be like Mary. See, but I'm not like Mary. I belong to the church. I'm a pastor in the church. So I put great stock in my faith and my hope. I'd like to think that I have great faith and great hope because I'm a believer. And I've believed for a long time. Note then the reaction to the Messiah from the people who have great faith and great hope. Meanwhile, it says, verse, verse 9 in chapter 12, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. Can you imagine? <clears throat> this happens just outside of Jerusalem. Lazarus' house had been filled with people just showing up to look at him. They just wander over the hill, over into Bethany, and say, so where is he? There he is. Can you imagine just Lazarus just sitting there? That's me. I don't know what you want me to say. Okay, it's me. I was dead. I'm alive now. He should have started charging for it. So the chief priest, and this is what kills me, is that John just jumps to this in the very next verse. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. What? To kill Lazarus, for on the count of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So not only do they want to kill the Messiah now, okay, because they had started planning to kill him as soon as he healed the man born blind, remember? It says from this moment on, they begin to plot to kill him. Now they want to kill Lazarus. Why? What did Lazarus do? Yeah. Back in chapter 11, it says this in verse 47, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs and miracles. And listen to what he says. He goes, And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The people of great faith and of great hope are placing their hope in their own personal interpretation of the theology of the Messiah, of what may or may not happen. They're taking it all into their own hands. Why? Because they're pretty smart people. And they're people of great faith and great hope. I don't know about you, but after their history, for 700 years before this, 
How many of you would consider giving up being an Israelite? It hasn't been a rosy road, has it? Captivity, attack. All, all those metal in that statue in Daniel, they all had some pretty tough armies and they all kicked Israel in the teeth. I think I would give up, wouldn't you? No, but here they are, soldiering on. A people of great faith and great hope. But if we let him go on like this, they said, we're going to lose it all. We're going to lose it all. It's amazing. The one who comes to establish his kingdom on earth and to do it with them in the land that he gave them 4,000 years before. And the very people that were supposed to be able to just have it, they think that he's going to take it away now. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he says. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas has studied. He's looked at prophecies. He knows someone's supposed to die somewhere. And he thinks this is it. He thinks this is it. He knows how to fulfill the prophecy. Caiaphas is smart. He studies his Bible. Even if it was crooked and it was a political appointment, you still didn't become high priest without really having something upstairs. And yeah, Brent, that's why they want to kill Lazarus, because Lazarus is now the most powerful witness that this guy really is who he says he is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. These guys are not operating rationally anymore. They're so committed to their faith and their hope that they're willing to commit murder to prevent the facts that they, that they were denying from coming to light. They're wrong and, that they're, and they know they're wrong. But what is their only priority in their great faith and their great hope? John says, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith, for they, would fe they feared that would, they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Their only priority now is to look good. Their only priority is for people to look at them and say, wow, what a people of great faith and great hope. And look what it leads to. Lazarus has committed no blasphemy. He's no broken no Jewish law. He's just a living witness of the power of Christ to back up his claim to his authority. He shows us what's to come. Jesus predicts it. He says, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. True followers of Jesus will always suffer, not at the hands of the world, but at the hands of the church, at the hands of people who have great faith and great hope, but they're missing one thing, love.
It was a people of great faith and great hope that killed the Messiah. But what they don't get is what Jesus says next. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. People of great faith and great hope, but without love, don't get the way of the cross. We don't get it. We don't understand it. How else are we supposed to approach the cross? Do we approach the cross with great faith and great hope? Do we approach the foot of the cross and say, Lord, my faith and my hope has led me here. I know who you are because I studied. I know who you are because I prayed. And I'm here to receive all you give now at the foot of the cross. I'm so glad that other people sinned to put you up there. But me, I have great faith. And I have great hope. How else are we supposed to approach the cross? Love without love and being and love is defined, Mona, is without what? Without self. David Vandenberg puts it this way when you come to the cross, you've got nothing to do but hang your helpless soul on Christ Jesus. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. My great faith, my great hope. Jesus said, you don't even have the faith of a mustard seed. Because if you did, you could make things happen. I can't cast a mountain in the sea. Can you, man? I wish I could. Be a cool trick, wouldn't it? There's nothing we can do. They had great faith and great hope. In fact, they even had the Bible to back it up. They begin to argue with him. The crowd spoke up. He says, we have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Obviously, Jesus, you haven't studied your Bible. Because Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah is not supposed to die, and we know it. It says right there in the Bible. You ever had a person of great faith and hope say that wonderful line to you? It's been said to me a couple of times. You don't agree with what I'm saying? Obviously, you haven't studied. You ever heard that? You ever told anybody that? I've heard it and told people it. In fact, I told people it even after I'd heard it, which shows you how messed up I am. I have great faith and I have great hope. But I have a difficulty when it comes to love. Jesus says yes. But the scripture also says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. 
We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Just a little selective reading. Selective reading, even if it's sincere, and it was sincere, that's what Psalm 110.4 says, but they want to protect a lofty, cherished doctrine. And that is, they don't want a weak Messiah. I don't need the kind of Messiah that would die on the cross for me. I've got that covered. Got sin covered. I've had since the captivity. I'm a Pharisee. I study my Bible. I have present truth. What I need is a powerful David-like Messiah to do something about these Romans because I've had it with them. Somebody needs to show them who you are. Because I'm tired of being reminded every day that my God is weak. I will crown my king my way. I will anoint him my way, my interpretation of Scripture, my anointing. And if I have to kill Jesus, if I have to kill Lazarus, if I have to kill the followers of Jesus, I will do it. So say it with me. Faith and hope without love is simply dangerous. See, If somebody goes and kills somebody, you could probably have a shot, have a chance to point out that it's wrong. I murdered Jonathan. Somebody may be able to point that out. Jim says, Greg, that wasn't right. That was wrong. And I might believe him. But if I believe and I have great faith and great hope that I'm doing God a service by killing Jonathan, then you can't tell me I'm wrong. There's been no human being with that kind of power that's able to keep it pure. Absolute power, in other words, power from God, power from the Bible, permission to kill, to do God a service. Absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. Faith and hope, no matter how great it is, without love, say it with me, is simply dangerous. We have to remove self from the equation. We have to become the type of people that can fall at the foot of Jesus in utter abject humility because we got nothing else. Bible study, great. Prayer, great. Have faith, great. Have hope, great. Now, love each other as I have loved you. Otherwise, we turn it selfish. I begin to use you to stand on your shoulders to make me look good because I want them to think that I have great faith and great hope. So I'll point out Sylvia's sin to make me look good. And we do it all the time. Every one of us. Who did Jesus condemn? Why did he condemn the Pharisees? They were self-righteous. He didn't condemn them because they ate cheese. 
He condemned the church. He condemned us for having great faith and great hope, but not having what? Not having love. Michael Iaconelli in his book, Messy Spirituality, may get us to think about this. He's talking about not Lazarus or where we are at here. He's talking about the man born blind. And you all know the story. Jesus heals this man, but it's not that, that he's just that he became blind from an accident. They they knew people that could heal from that. This guy was born blind, which means what? God wanted him blind. That's the way they saw it. Okay, this is God's work. This is God's doing. There's nothing you can do about it, Rabbi. Okay, it's kind of like an ophthalmologist not being able to do anything about it because it's congenital. You know, it isn't an accident. They can't they can't put this back together and make him see. This guy is born blind. He asked Jesus to see. What does Jesus do? There you go. Gives it to him. Does it. It shakes everybody up. Not the fact that he healed a man born blind. That's wonderful news. It's the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. That's what bothered him. I like what you did, but I don't like the way you did it. And he calls this chapter the kingdom monitors and the condemners. According to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went all the wrong places, said the wrong things, and worst of all, let just anyone into the kingdom. Jesus scandalized an an intimidating elitist country club religion by opening membership in the spiritual life to those who had been denied it. What made people furious was Jesus was irresponsible. He had a habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoevers, the just anyones, and the not a chances like you and me. Nothing makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumble into a party we aren't invited to and find the uninvited standing at the door making sure no other uninviteds get in. Then a strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we're included in the party because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible. By becoming self-appointed kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out, which, as I understand it, are who the kingdom of God is supposed to include. Go out into the byways and onto the streets and bring me the lame and the poor and the blind. Those who weren't invited the first time. The ones who were invited decided not to go. They didn't need to be at the kingdom. They had great faith. They had great hope. John tells the story of a man like us, an outsider, a blind outsider. The blind man bumped into Jesus, found his blindness ruined by him, became a scandal to the religious leaders of the day. His miraculous encounter with Jesus is a model for all us who are trying to live spiritual lives. In chapter 9, we meet this man who was blind from birth, sitting in his familiar place, begging. The disciples bring up some theological question about whether his blindness was caused by his his sin or his parents' sin. They're not concerned about the blind man. What they're concerned about is the theology of blindness. The disciples attempt to have a theological discussion. Jesus cuts it short. He makes it very clear that what matters is glorifying God, helping blind men and women see. The disciples are worried about theories and doctrines. Jesus is worried about the blind man. Now the blind man's troubles really begin. Sometimes when blind people get unblinded, 
their closest friends are not happy. Meeting Jesus does not always result in our troubles ending. Sometimes our troubles just begin. Jesus warns us, do not suppose that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Begin a relationship with Jesus, and we're going to set in the same kind of trouble Jesus did. Condemned, by the way, not by the world. i tell you right now, the world wants Jesus. They're tired of the church. The world wants Jesus. And the world usually responds when they hear the gospel. Our question is, they're not responding because they haven't heard it. We're coming at them with faith and hope when we should be coming at them with what? With love. When a man who's formerly blind returns to his neighborhood, his neighbors refuse to believe he can see. Afraid of mystery, unable to fathom the possibility of a miracle, the neighbors turn their backs on their friend, drag him to those who should have known something about mystery, miracle, and spirituality, the religious leaders, the church of the day, the condemners, though. And the sabotage of the blind man begins. So how do you and I live? How do you and I respond to intimidation? How can we survive when those around us criticize our spirituality or worse, reject us because we're not religious enough? The blind man gives us clues. Tell us, Mr. Blind Man, they say. How did you get your eyesight back? Man's answer is very bizarre. Stranger made mud with his own spit, stuck it in my eyes and ordered me to wash it off in the pool of Siloam. I did what he said, now I can see. He passes sight 101, but he flunks religion 101. The kingdom monitors no more about God than an uneducated, uncouth blind man, or so they believe. A hated lecture ensues. Any Sabbath school student knows that people who are blind from birth are paying for the sins of their family. The real God doesn't use mud to heal people, especially from self-appointed prophets no one has ever heard of. And most certainly, God does not heal on the Sabbath. I've studied. I know this. The kingdom monitors know know more about God than an uneducated, uncouth blind man. Religious people love to hide behind religion. They love the rules of religion more than they love Jesus. With practice, condemners let rules become more important than the spiritual life. People of great faith and of great hope. But without love, it's simply what? Dangerous. Brennan Manning tells the story of a recent convert to Jesus who was approached by an unbelieving friend. So you've been converted to Christ? Yes. Then you must know a great deal about him. Tell me, what country was he born in? I don't know. What age was he when he died? I don't know. How many sermons did he preach? I don't know. You certainly know very little for a man who claims to be converted to Christ. Well, you're right. I'm ashamed at how little I know about him, but this much I do know. Three years ago, I was a drunk. I was in debt. My family was falling to pieces. They dreaded the sight of me. But now I'm happy to have given up drink. We're out of debt. Ours is a happy home. My children eagerly await my return home each evening. All this Christ has done for me. That much I know about Christ. Maybe the alcoholic and the blind man don't know much about Jesus, but they know plenty about their encounters with Jesus. The alcoholic and the blind man may not have studied biblical history, but their lives have been changed by the truth. 
And the Pharisees, then and now, knew it. Armed with their superior education, their flawless theology, the power of their religion, the Pharisees desperately try to regain control by attacking with questions. Is Jesus the devil? Where is he? What do you know about him? The blind man knows very little about Jesus, but he's an expert in first time seeing. He doesn't know where Jesus is, but he knows what Jesus did. He can't define a Messiah, but he certainly can describe what it's like to see a flower for the first time. When confronted with questions about Jesus, the blind man is not afraid to say, I don't know. I don't know is often the only reply we can give to explain the mystery of Christ. Jesus often left his followers, I don't knowing. Our personal relationship with Christ is often the only apologetic we can offer. Our lack of knowing is the beginning of humility and the very essence of the spiritual life. And now abide these three things. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I wish I could love you the way that I'm supposed to. I do miss you. And I love you as much as I can. And I hope we get together more often. Especially more often than just for when we have to tuck in one of us to sleep. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I want to thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to be here today. For friends, for family, <clears throat> to come together on Sabbath morning, to open up your word, to study, to have our faith increased and have our hope increased, and to experience your love through the touch and the words of friends is something we don't deserve and is beyond our comprehension, Lord. Just ask that not another moment goes by that we do not feel what you have done for us today. I ask that you bring us to the foot of the cross and that you instill and imbibe and imbue in us your love. Let our faith, let our hope, let our doctrine, let our building, let our program, let everything be filtered through your love and your love alone. Teach us to love, Lord. We are incapable. And we know that this incapability of being able to love is what you came to save us from. I just ask that anybody's heard your voice today to be saved. I praise you that you saved me from myself and all of us here who believe in you. We praise Jesus today, for certainly he's the only one that deserves it in his name.